Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode of Success That Lasts. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. Did you know that 96% of Stanford's applications are not accepted? Columbia, Duke, Princeton, Navy, Pomona, and Rice are just a few of the elite schools that boast of single-digit acceptance rates. Those are known elite schools, and so people aren't all that surprised at the low admissions rate. But you might be surprised to know that the national average, according to U.S. News, is still only 68% acceptance some of the perennial safety schools are now much more difficult to get into. In earlier episodes, we've discussed that money buys you things, experiences, and impact. And for many of us, college is an experience that we really want to provide to our children or grandchildren. Thus, in this week's episode, we visit with Anna Ivey, the founder of Ivy Consulting. Anna was the Dean of Admissions for the University of Chicago Law School. Anna's an attorney, author, and entrepreneur. Together, we discuss the evolving landscape of college admissions the resources available, and how to position an application to increase its odds of success. So without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode with Anna Ivy. Anna Ivy, welcome to Success That Last. I'm super pumped for our conversation today about college admissions and kind of thinking about and strategizing for college education, kind of higher ed decisions for people that we care about in our lives. I'm excited for this too, Jared. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Well, Let's just start with who you are. Let's provide context to the audience today of who you are and kind of your unique background that led you to this opportunity for kind of admissions consulting. So let's start there. Sure. I'm a former dean of admissions from the University of Chicago, and I've also worked in development, which is a fancy word for fundraising at Stanford. So I've seen a lot of sausage getting made. It's not always pretty, but it did give me a good overview of how these things work their ways through the system at selective universities. And after a stint practicing law for a hot shining nanosecond, (laughs) that was my prior career, I ended up in the admissions and development world. And I built out an admissions consulting firm with a bunch of former admissions officers who have worked with me now for many years, and I'm very grateful to them. I also have built an ed tech product that helps people with their college applications. I have co-written a book with my colleague, Allison, called How to Prepare a Standout College Application. My publisher came up with that name, but it's not terribly fancy, but it's descriptive. It has that going for it. You know what you're getting. You know exactly what you're getting, right. And so our philosophy is that to succeed with your college applications, you really need to understand what the admissions officer is looking for. Ultimately, that's the only audience that matters in this process. It's not mom. 
It's not the SAT tutor. It's not the English teacher. It's not even the school-based counselor. These are all wonderful resources, but they're not ultimately the audience that is going to make the decision on your file. And so that undergirds our philosophy throughout all the advice we give, whether that's in writing or on podcasts or in ed tech tools or, you know, one-on-one consulting. So there's so many different ways we'll take, we could take today's conversation. So I ultimately want to circle back to why you chose to start your business. We can maybe Mm -hmm. end it there. I think that's an interesting thing, but your perspective from a consulting perspective, you've been on the other side of the table. And so you actually understand the challenge or the dynamic of all these different competing priorities that an admissions director is probably looking at. I had a whole lot more understanding of how to write a resume after I started reading resumes in terms of right? trying to look at candidates. Yeah. It's difficult. You get a stack of papers and generally people end up looking very similar. And it's hard to delineate what makes one person different. So you start looking for nuances and idiosyncrasies. And probably there's things that I look for in a resume that might look different than somebody else. And so I guess help me understand like that challenge of being an admissions director, particularly at elite universities like Stanford and University of Chicago. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. There's, it's one thing to read an essay and it's just one essay and you're reading it in a vacuum and you think it's amazing and you're an amazing kid and you know, you have so many things going for you. And I'm sure that is all exactly true. It's another thing to be on the other side of that table and read thousands of applications from amazing people. One of the great heartbreaks of being an admissions officer at a highly selective university is that you do have to turn away so absolutely fall in love with. That is part of the job. And I will play admissions officers the world's smallest violin because obviously that is that pales in comparison to the heartbreak of people who are applying and don't get in. But in general, these are not ogres looking to find reasons to keep people out. They would love to let more people in. But the very definition of a highly selective university is that they just get so many more applications than they than they have spots for. And so not everyone is going to break an admissions officer's heart if they have to say no, but they could fill their classes several times over with people who they know would succeed in their program. And so sometimes it comes down to just very, very fine distinctions. But I'll also say some things they have to care about go way beyond any one applicant. So these are what they call institutional priorities. And that's admissions speak for all the things that the university has to care about in an incoming class. And so admissions officers have all these different constituents, right? They have to care about what applicants think and what the high schools think. They have to care about what their professors who are teaching these people think. They have to care about what the provost thinks. They have to care about what the trustees think. They certainly have to care about what the alums think, right? If your admissions rate or your, uh, yeah, your admissions rate goes down noticeably, you're going to hear about it from the alums. So, you know, they get these certain mandates and the incoming class needs to have certain representation of different kinds of people. And that might have nothing to do with your application in particular, but maybe that year they really need an oboe player or the institutional priority is to give strong preference to legacies, or they have strong preferences for recruited athletes. Or one of, the, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that most colleges practice quietly, but they practice affirmative action in favor of boys. And that's been true for years now. They tend to get far more applications from highly qualified girls. And yeah. so to keep roughly even numbers in the incoming class, they have to do a little massaging there. So There's all this stuff that goes on in the background that they have to care about 
that is much bigger than any one applicant. So when they say don't take it personally, if you don't get in, that's actually true. There's some PR marketing stuff that happens in the admissions process. But when they say that, you can actually believe them. It's not personal. So our organization, DLAP, we're really focused on creating clarity and confidence around client decisions. And so when it comes to business and finance, there's a lot of things that are outside of your control. But there's a lot of things that are important in a subset of those things we do control. And so we do focus kind of on the intersection of things that matter and things that we can control. And I presume that the admissions process sounds like a very similar experience. And so I guess knowing that there's going to be things that are outside of our control, whether or not we're a world-class basketball player or an oboe player or my ethnicity or gender or any of those. I was never going to be a basketball player. Sorry. Never going to happen. I was actually, I had the opportunity, though I'm a 5'10", rather slow pedestrian looking individual, I I had the opportunity to play college football as a place kicker. And that that experience going to college was a the application process was different. The admissions process Mm -hmm. was nuanced. Yeah. Which makes it a little bit more uh, for me, I'm more interested in the what I can expect from my own kids. and, And when I'm advising clients, you know, for their kids or their grandkids, how to think about it. And so I guess as a parent interested in in allowing your kid to flourish in university, where they go is is one option, but it's kind of becoming universally competitive. It's harder to get into schools that you might not think would be difficult to get into. So as a parent trying to prepare a kid or a grandparent trying to prepare a grandchild, how do you focus them on the intersection of things that matter and, and things that they can control? I love that concept. I'm picturing a matrix of here are the things that matter more, here are the things that matter less, and then here are the things you can control. <laughs> here are the things yeah. you can't control. And you're absolutely right. The things you can't control, you know, you just shouldn't lose sleep over and focus all your energy and your stress is a loaded word. But, you know, whatever activities you're going to spend on and and emotional energy you're going to spend on this, you know, spend it on the things you can control. I think that's brilliant. I'm going to sort of have that matrix in the front of my mind. I think it's a great frame for our discussion, too. And to your point, a lot changes in admissions in the college higher ed landscape. So when parents were applying, certain schools may have been safety schools, for example, that are no longer safety schools. And sometimes that's a big pill for parents to swallow. And they think, what do you mean my kid isn't a shoe in at this particular college? You know, I'm almost insulted. And it's like, well, the world has changed. Lots of things change. And so, you know, this concept of college fit is an interesting one. And and not everyone has the luxury of, of being able to focus on fit. For some people, it's just about, can I afford to go? But if that is not a big limitation, then absolutely you have the luxury of focusing on fit and really thinking about where a particular student is going to thrive. And as a parent, there's pretty much nobody who knows your kid better, right? And and the great thing is that while the media likes to focus on maybe five schools max over and over and over again, fact is there are many, many wonderful colleges in this vast country of ours. And with a bit of research, There is a college out there that a student can get into where they will thrive. And so if if you're not too focused on my kid has to go to one of five schools, then there will be some wonderful opportunities out there. So as a parent, help me with a framework that I can begin to understand the different perspectives or considerations that as I'm helping my, my children explore their options... What Mm -hmm. would determine fit? Like what are some of the criteria considerations that need to be 
inventoried. Yeah, and this, these are exercises we like to go through with the students themselves because it can be sort of an interesting exploration for them to go through and, and to reflect on. One of the things, for example, I mean, it's a, it's a long list. You could throw anything in there. So many interesting things. But one thing, for example, would be what's your preferred learning style? By the time you're in high school and, and getting ready to apply to college, you probably have a sense of, am I someone who loves the written word and loves to sit in a library and read a lot of books? Am I the kind of person who's a maker and wants to be really hands-on? You know, those are two very different kinds of programs that you would be looking at, you know, where that are going to play to your strengths, basically, right? Some people have strong feelings about rural or small or large, or I need to be in a city or I want to be close to home or gosh, I'd really like to try something different. For some people, it's important to have access to research opportunities so you want professors there who, do, who are doing cool kinds of research projects that you might have access to. And for other people, that's less important. For some people, it's the kind of majors that are available. And do you want to apply to a liberal arts program where you have the first two years to kind of try things out and figure it out? Or are you applying to a program where you have to decide at the application stage what you're going to be majoring in and what program you're going to be in? Those are two different kinds of application styles. So that's just off the top of my head. But these are all interesting things that students can be thinking about. And I think as parents, the proper role there, or I should say the most productive role there is to be a really good conversation partner. Yeah. And because we're dealing with teenagers, right, I think a little bit of paternalism is still appropriate, meaning I've had conversations with students where I'm trying to figure out what the logic is behind the list they came up with. And I'm scratching my head and I can't figure it out. And the answer will be, oh, I wanted schools on my list that all have campuses that remind me of Harry Potter. Okay, well, let's revisit that. <laughs> or true story, this one made me scratch my head even more. Well, I picked schools where I really like the school colors because as an alum, I'm gonna have to wear those the whole rest of my life. So Princeton is out. Okay, <laughs> you know, I don't like the mascot or uh, yeah. Well, I mean, my parents came to me in kindergarten and asked me if they if I wanted to go to the the private Catholic school or the public school, and I chose the public school because it had a bus, and I thought it'd be cool to ride the bus with my friends. Right. Yeah. So mission, mission the judgment <laughs> is all not always sound. When that At six, that was the number one criteria. When the prefrontal cortex is still developing as it is, yeah. you know, into one's early 20s, at least, I do think it's appropriate for parents to be, an, you know, a conversation partner to help think through that college list. But there are places online where you can sort of sort for these different things as you're exploring. One easy way to do that is to, uh, and you can just Google it, it's College Board Big Future. And it's a website, a search tool that lets you search along all kinds of different criteria. And I would just treat that as a starting point. That should not yeah. be the end point, right? But they've collected, they've scraped all this data basically about these different colleges and you can sort of search along a bunch of different criteria. And it's a nice starting point to start having that conversation. So let's begin to kind of dissect, I guess, the different criteria, maybe kind of like an applicant scoring process, like how things are weighted so that, you know, if, if time is finite, energy is finite, where people would, should focus their efforts if they're going to try to positively impact the probability of, of an emission. What's the relationship between grades versus the 
type or rigor of the classes versus mm -hmm. test scores versus co-curriculars versus sure. experiences and community mm -hmm. service. It would be interesting for me to understand maybe kind of the major criteria and kind of the, the general weighting. I, every university is going to be different. Probably an admissions director might be nuanced as well, but just mm -hmm. a framework to think about it as I try to advise my daughter and my son where they should be spending their time. I would argue that even at the most kind of famous party school, you know, which ones those are, ultimately it's still an academic enterprise or it's yeah. supposed to be. So at least in the intake process, they're going to care about your academics and ultimately your performance, your academic performance throughout high school is going to matter more than a test that you take on a Saturday morning, right? And so you want to be paying attention to your grades in high school. And the more selective the college is, the more it's going to care about rigor of those classes. And so that's a balancing act. And there's no one size fits all for every kid, meaning, you know, you could take the more rigorous class but if it's at the expense of the grade, that's a trade-off. And so one kind of quick and dirty rule of thumb that I have is I'm okay with one bump in the grade. For example, if the regular class would mean an A and then the AP class or the honors class or the IB class or whatever it is within your system, if the, if the more rigorous class would be a B, I'm okay with that. If it's a bigger differential, I would say stick with the easier class because, you know, as with most things in life, life, life is full of trade-offs, right? But in a yeah. perfect world, you would take the most rigorous classes on offer to you and you would do really, really well in them, which of course is, is the holy grail, right? So GPA, number one, close second, rigor. I guess in terms of the cumulative application, what weighting is that? I mean, relative to... I've always heard anecdotally that, you know, your involvement in co-curriculars, your, the evidence of your leadership, your mm -hmm. involvement in the community are also considerations. And again, all of those other things matter too. And so this is when admissions officers like to throw around the world holistic, the age board, which means that they really look at what they think of as the whole person. So you're not just the grades, you're not just the test score. They want to see who you are outside the classroom as well. And so, yes, activities, life experiences, those things matter too. And those are all parts of the application. That's why they are in there. And one of the things that I think colleges don't do a great job at is where kind of we come in to translate the admissions speak is when they tell you that they take a holistic approach to the application and the evaluation phase, they're also giving you an instruction about how to about how to do your applications, meaning you need to do your applications in a holistic way as well, meaning they're not going to read your essay in a vacuum. They're not going to read your transcript in a vacuum. They're going to look at all of it together. And so as an applicant, that means that you have to make sure all those pieces fit together. And they're saying, basically telling a coherent story about you. All of this, I would say, is expecting a lot of a 17-year-old, <laughs> right? That you're yeah. supposed to be able to decode all this. And it is expecting a lot. It's a system that I have some beefs with. But different schools do assign different weights to those different components. So, for example, some schools care about geography, where you're coming from. Other schools don't. Some, cares, some schools care if you're a legacy. Others don't take that into consideration at all. They actually report this data and you can look it up. You just have to know where to find it. And again, Papa Google is your friend here. 
type in the college name and then you type in the words common data set and then you can hit search. You can get even more specific because you're going to have to pull up that particular report anyway for a particular cycle. So the most recent data we have is for the 2020 to 2021 cycle. So you could you could Google Dartmouth common data set 2020 to 21. And in that common data set, <laughs> you go to row C7. It's a standardized form. You go to row C7 and it has a chart. And the chart lists a standardized set of different considerations. And then the schools will put a check mark into different columns, whether it's something they care about a lot or a little or somewhere in between. And there's some really interesting differences there, but you have to know it's out there. How would you know it's out there, right? You can certainly organize knowledge into three big buckets, the things you know, the things you don't know, and the things you didn't know you didn't know. I didn't even know I didn't know that, but now I know. It's out there. It's, It's like, okay, you're a finance guy, right? It's like the, and I'm a former corporate lawyer, you know how in financial statements and SEC filings, all the bodies are buried in the footnotes, right? Yeah. Same thing here. You got to know where to look. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and that That's just wonderful. comes with so, experience. Again, you Google it. What are you looking for? And what line again, just so that our... Yeah, our- sure. It's the school name. Yep. So, you know, fill in the blank school name and then the words common data set. And if you just Google that, it should give you a list for each year and you want the most recent year, ideally. And then you go to row C7. <laughs> okay, there you go. I just know this off the top of my head because I look at it It's like my business partners, yeah, that have the tax forms memorized in the boxes memorized. Right, they know exactly. Or my, you know, my own tax accountant is like, well, row 602. And I'm like, ah, let me flip through here for a second. Wait a second. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Now, I will also add the caveat that if you go to that College Board Big Futures website, Mm -hmm. which I mentioned earlier, it actually scrapes the data or purports to scrape the data from those common data sets. But Sometimes it's a year behind. Okay. And so the information on the College Board site can be outdated, which is why for that C7 information, I say go directly to the source to this year's common data set. So the reason this matters is that you may have heard that this past cycle, a lot of schools went test optional, right? Schools that used to require standardized tests went optional or even test blind because of the difficulty in taking these tests during a pandemic. And so the college board site would show a college, for example, as still waiting the standardized test as very important, quote unquote. But if you then, but that's a year old. So if you go to the common data set for that school, turns out it's not important because they're now test optional or even test blind. So go straight to the source. So let's test my intuition here. Yeah. So my intuition, sometimes right, oftentimes wrong. So my intuition is, is that when you go to test optional, mm-hmm. if I'm below average on my test score, I don't submit it. And, and if I'm above the average, it's additive and then I would submit it. And so indirectly, admissions officers might know where I'm at in my application. So I guess, how do we think about test scores in light of some of the criticism that they have received in schools making, I think the, the entire UC program, right? Isn't that now optional or, or not, not even It's not even optional. All? It's test blind. They won't even look at scores, even if you have them. That's wild. So I guess yeah, that's a whole new world that I can't it even is a whole my new mind, world. mind around. So how do we... How I know do we, because when we were applying to college and 
you know, I won't make any guesses about your age, but test scores were really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think you're, if you have the opportunity to take the tests and it doesn't put your health at risk and you can spend the time and maybe the resources on prepping for them and doing well on them, then certainly they're worth submitting. But not everyone is great at these tests or has the time to spend or has the opportunity. And so the good news is that that landscape changed so dramatically and that the tests really no longer have to be a barrier if for whatever reason you're not in a position to show them a a strong test score. What has not changed fundamentally, and you know, I'd get all these media calls during pandemic and you know, they wanted like, oh, what's changed? You know, they, they wanted some story about dramatic, some dramatic change in the admissions process because of the pandemic. But ultimately, the test scores were not as important as your academic performance in high school anyway. And that has not changed fundamentally. They're still fundamentally caring about the same things as they did before. And I would also add that increasingly, there's so much solid research that has been done showing that the standardized tests, and it doesn't matter if you're talking about the SAT or the ACT, they add very little predictive value over and above your high school transcript. Yeah, It's not that they have no value whatsoever, you know, in a vacuum, maybe they would, but they just don't add a whole lot of value above the data points that they already have. And so, as I say, if you're a good test taker and you can prep for these things and you can get good scores, you know, knock yourself out. But if for whatever reason that is not playing to your strengths, then this is a great era in college admissions for you because, you know, a whole bunch of more options are, are available to you than, than before. I was an academic grinder. I got great grades, but I had to work harder for them than, than most people. And that doesn't necessarily translate to standardized testing very well. Well, it's just a completely different beast, right? Yeah. I can't say I would miss them, but... As I say, I think overall, it's good for people to have to have choices. What made things a little bit difficult for admissions officers during the pandemic, and again, small violin here compared to the applicants, is that a lot of schools, a lot of high schools also basically went grade optional, right? Or just went pass fail. And so then <laughs> you just have few, fewer and fewer data points yeah. to work with. But this hopefully is a one-off situation and not something that is kind of repeat itself again in our lifetimes, knock on wood. I hope I didn't just jinx it. Totally. One of the things I wanted to talk to you today was helping to understand kind of the finances of higher education mm-hmm. and how to to delineate what the, the list price is, kind of the public yeah. tuition versus the actual cost of, of attendance and the opportunities for the lion's share of our audience isn't going to be eligible for kind of traditional financial aid, but they have often incredibly gifted kids that might might qualify for more merit-based scholarships. So I guess, what does that landscape look like right now? And, and how would you better understand kind of your actual cost of attendance through the planning process of what schools might be a good fit? Yeah. So you're, you're identifying the, the sticker price problem, which is yeah. that they publish these sticker prices, but in fact, just about everybody sitting in the class there is paying something different. You know, it's like buying a car. I mean, it's just, it's kind of nutty. We have a kind of a crazy system. The rest of the world doesn't do it this way, right? We have a crazy system where you have to apply, get in, and then wait for your financial aid award to find out what you'll actually be paying. 
it's kind of backwards, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Difficult, difficult to plan when you find out the price after the fact. You know, some schools have these calculators where you're supposed to be able to put in some information up front and you're supposed to get that information up front. They're somewhat flawed and that's a much bigger conversation. But here's what your audience would need to know. So assuming they're not really eligible for need-based aid, a lot of colleges are using scholarships, not necessarily to meet need, but to meet what they call merit. I think of that in quotation marks because it's such a fraught word, but it's basically non-need aid. And that means they're using that scholarship money as recruiting tools. They want you for whatever reason. And so they are going to discount the tuition. And here's some more inside baseball lingo. Internally, schools don't even call them scholarships. Applicants love when they're called scholarships, resume, and it sounds really good. Internally, they're not even scholarships. They're just called tuition discounts because that's all they are. So they're going to discount the tuition in order to recruit you and in order to close that deal. And what colleges have that applicants don't, colleges and universities spend a whole lot of money on technology tools, these big data analytics tools that will predict down to the penny what amount they can offer you to close that deal. So... Here's you as the applicant. You're basically going up against, you know, all this big data the schools have and pay for to try to maximize the amount of money they can get out of you, but still close the deal. So most of the time you don't haggle over price, but like when you go and buy a car, you know that you can haggle, but but you don't haggle at the restaurant. You don't haggle at Nordstrom's. People haggle with colleges all the time. So I guess, what does that look like? As a parent, I'd be curious to understand like how to understand that process. Okay, this is their opening offer and we can counter and and what that looks like. Yeah, it's a little bit different in the need-based world, right? Where haggling would involve, hey, maybe you didn't know this about my circumstances. Let me give you some more information, right? So if that's not a need-based negotiation, right? Then, for example, you might very politely explain what other offers you have. Yeah. Right. And what they're costing. Now, one of the really frustrating things, and again, it is kind of like buying a car or in this case, it's more even like buying, trying to compare prices on mattresses where the same mattress is called something different at every store, right? It's just, it's mind bogglingly bad. When you're looking at your financial aid award, which would include merit scholarships, if you have one or tuition discounting. Okay. Of course, you want to focus on the bottom line. Like, what would you actually be paying out of pocket? You don't want to get too focused on the size of the discount. You know, you think, oh, this yeah. school is offering me discount X, which is bigger than, you know, yeah. discount G, you know, but ultimately that matters less than, you know, what the what the bottom line is. Of course, different places and different schools have very different costs attached to them. And that's too where uh, an area where a lot of bodies get buried. And the place where I see the most shenanigans uh, is perhaps the most polite way I can describe it in the way that they factor in the expected costs is basically cost of living. What's it, what does it cost, for example, for housing? I've seen the most preposterous numbers in those letters where in New York City, in Manhattan, they're estimating that your rent will be, you know, $900 a month or something ridiculous. It does benefit you to get a little bit forensic when you're looking at those financial aid awards. But ultimately, if it's not a need-based negotiation, 
it's about leverage. What competing offers do you have? And, you know, again, if they've made you a merit-based scholarship offer, it's because they do want to close this deal. They are trying to recruit you. And so then, you know, you want to politely point out, you know, what other options you have. And you can do that very politely and you attach, you attach a copy of the competing offer that you have. Yep. And, you know, there might be a little bit of back and forth. Honestly, the worst they can do is say no. That is literally the worst that can happen. You are not in danger of losing your offer of, of admission. Nobody's going to say, oh, how tacky that they even asked. We don't want this person anymore. That's not going to happen. Hey, I had actually a random question. I've got a 14-year-old daughter who, who's exploring social media. <laughs> to what extent do admissions officers check out what's being posted online? Yeah. Oh, I know. I'm just so glad none of that technology existed when I was young and stupid. Not to suggest who that wishes there was like all this. <laughs> well, who wants <laughs> who, their I know. adolescence documented and shared? I know. Like and if you recall, this, there was just a Supreme Court case around this young woman cheerleader. Yeah. <laughs> who yeah. sent a vulgar Snapchat, God forbid. So it is an issue. And admissions officers, you should assume admissions officers can look. Do they have time to go audit your social media? They don't have time for anything. Yeah. That is so far down their list. Usually when people get in trouble because of social media in the admissions process, it's because somebody has ratted them out. Somebody has taken a screenshot yeah. and forwarded it to the admissions office. And when they retract offers that have already been made, it's usually for sort of things that are nuclear. You've used the N-word or you've said yeah. really anti-Semitic things or it's, it's usually yep. pretty bad. It's not just sort of youthful silliness. Yeah. Right? Or a funny TikTok video. Excellent. Well, we're winding down on our time, but I just wanted already. to... Spend, already. <laughs> already. This week, we could probably by. spend hours on hours. this topic, but I wanted to pivot a little bit to you personally. The audience, they own businesses, they right. own real estate. And so you're in the midst of kind of this conversation about admissions. We're also, it's a conversation amongst peers. And so you're a business owner, you're an entrepreneur you have this really interesting background of time at Stanford, time at the University of Chicago, time as a you know, corporate attorney. So you know what charge hours are probably. Oh, I, don't, I don't miss that part. No, who does? But who does? I, I'm curious kind of what the catalyst was for this business and kind of the entrepreneurial bug and kind of the why behind it and how that's expressed in the teammates that you recruit and the clients that you recruit. Yeah. So I was a baby lawyer. I had come out of law school, went into a sort of big corporate firm and had what I call, promptly had what I call my quarter life crisis, meaning I had spent all this time and blood, sweat and tears and taken the bar and taken on a heap of student loans to be a lawyer. And then I realized, oh dear God, I just can't see myself doing this for the rest of my life. And yet I don't know how to do anything else, really. I don't even really know how to be a lawyer yet, you know, as a second year associate. The paralegals know more than you do yeah. at that point. And so I had a bit of a crisis and I really missed being in the university environment, which up until that point is really all I had known. And so I'm a cautionary tale in the sense that I don't think people should go straight to graduate school out of college because you just don't know yourself well enough yet outside of school. Yeah. Anyway, so I had an opportunity to go back to the University of Chicago, work in admissions, and then I was at Stanford and in development. And I do love being in university environments. But what I then learned about myself 
working in those places is that temperamentally, it is not an ideal scenario for me if it's a sort of really big lumbering bureaucracy. And that's what universities are. Yeah. You know, this is not Amazon, right? As you can tell from their websites, among other things, right? You know, this process and... Okay, here's an anecdote. When I first took my job at Stanford, a meeting was held and I was one of, I think, four people in a meeting. So you can kind of count up the man and woman hours involved here, where we discussed whether the phone, the landline, this is how long ago this was, we had to discuss whether the landline they were going to order for me should have the red button that blinks when you have a voicemail because that version costs $40 more. <laughs> and I'm doing the math in my head and thinking we've blown way past $40 just having these people sit in a room to discuss this by committee. <laughs> yeah, so you you were not wired. You multiply that by, you know, it's just everything is like that. You want to hang, I mean, at University of Chicago, if I wanted to hang a picture on my wall in my office, I couldn't bang the nail myself. I had to call the union guys to do it. Yeah. Just every little thing is like that. And of course, it's death by a thousand paper cuts in terms of the, the committee work. And yes. you know, it, some people work really well in that kind of environment. And I don't mean to slight them at all, but that is not my temperament. And so I realized I'm more cut out for a more nimble environment. And so at that point, I did wonder whether there might be a market for people who wanted guidance, you know, one-on-one for their application process. At the time, it wasn't really an industry yet in terms of doing independent consulting. And so there was always mass confusion, you know, when I was trying to explain what I did. And that was honestly the hardest thing about leaving the law was if you're at a party or whatever, you meet someone, I'm a lawyer, they go, oh yeah, you know, for better or worse, but they have a sense of of what that is, you know. But if you say, oh, I'm an admissions consultant, back then just wasn't an industry yet. And we hadn't had these awful, awful scandals, you know, in the news. And it just, it wasn't something that people were that familiar with. And so I would try to explain. And then they would say, oh, so remind me, which school are you working for? And I'd say, well, let me back up because clearly I didn't explain it (laughs) well enough. I'm not working for a school. So I was really building that. There are very, very few people out there who were doing it at the time. But it turned out, yes, you know, there is a market for that. There is a demand for that. And so it's, it's been incredibly rewarding. And the people on our team are former admissions officers from a variety of, of top schools. And, and they all have sort of things that they're passionate about as well. But for one reason or another, they would rather kind of have some control over their own time and where they're working from. And, as, and we've been virtual from the very beginning, long before the pandemic. So the pandemic changed nothing about our standard operating procedure. And so as soon as some of that enterprise level collaboration software got cheap enough for small businesses a while back, I just jumped all over it. And we've been virtual from the very beginning. So our clients are all over the United States and all over the world. Our consultants are all over the United States as well. And we have some overseas. So, you know, I don't care what mountaintop they're sitting on as long as they have internet. Yeah. Good to go. One of the things that I've, I've discovered is you spend all day in this business and many of the conversations that you have are with prospective clients and exploring whether or not it's a fit. Conversely, we're helping people from a financial planning perspective or an estate planning perspective or business coaching and consulting. But it's not something that people have bought before. And so you don't necessarily know what you don't know. Right. So I guess 
if you're talking to me mm-hmm. and I'm looking for a world-class admissions consultant to help steward the process, how should I think about that decision so that I'm informed of all the kind of the, the different ways that people approach the same problem? No, that's a good, that's a good question. So the first thing I would say is look at what resources you have in-house, as it were. You know, it might be that you're at a school where your school-based counselor is really giving you, you know, first-class care. You know, you might not need an outside consultant. Maybe yes, maybe no. That's an individual assessment. If you decide you want some outside help, I think there are a couple of metrics that you can, can look at depending on your needs. So on the one hand, for example, is, is what level of experience are you looking for? Because there are a lot of people out there who are admissions consultants, but they've all touched a different part of the process. So on and with my firm, we're former admissions officers. So side of the table, and that is part of our brand, for lack of a better word, you know, yeah. that is part of what we're offering. But there are people who have been school-based counselors and now they're retired, you know, and now they're doing that work, or they're still school-based counselors and moonlighting. That happens a lot. Sometimes there are parents who say, well, my kid just got into Princeton and I really got into the weeds with this. And this is what I want to do professionally now. And they go out and get a certificate and they start a business. So there's a wide range of experience. And that's on the legitimate side, right? That's on the ethical side. And then I don't need to tell you all, given the, you know, the varsity blue scandal, then they're people who are serving high net worth individuals who, you know, they're the Bernie Madoffs. Yeah. Every industry has them. Every industry has it. And unlike finance, you know, admissions consultants are not regulated. So unfortunately, you have to think a little bit harder about sort of the ethics and and who are these people. And you can't really go by, well, you know, they you know, they have this qualification and they have this certificate and they have this membership and they've passed this bar exam or whatever, right? So it requires a little bit more homework, but you can think about what level of expertise and experience do you want? You might not need the Maserati version. You just might not. Maybe the Honda is fine, even if you can afford more, you know? And then the other thing I would think about is how important to you is it that it be in person? Yeah. We've never done in person. I mean, if they're in town, great. We'll meet for coffee. That's fantastic. But it's not part of our model, right? Yeah. But for some families, it's really important that you be able to meet in person. And sometimes the particular kid really benefits from somebody literally standing there <laughs> over their shoulder, right? It really depends on kind of how self-directed they can be in an online environment. Although who knows, maybe, you know, their skill set has developed a bit current circumstances. So there are a number of different things you can be looking at. And then you can think, think about too, just want, you know, help with very discreet things. Like, do you want just help with the essay or just the college list? Do you prefer working with people on an hourly basis? Like we don't really do hourly, you know, we have certain packages, but we don't do hourly and we don't charge and, you know, don't want to go back to the world of charging in six or 15 minute increments. I know in certain professions that is the yeah. norm, but I was very happy to move away from that because I could. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's the beauty. So, you know, you can think about too, you know, what level of engagement you're looking for. Some people come to us in ninth grade. Other people show up the summer before 12th grade. Usually we won't work with people before ninth grade. We say, go run in the sprinklers, you know, and enjoy your childhood. But sometimes there are reasons why it might make sense. You know, somebody might have a kid in eighth grade and they're saying, well, I'm a partner at Baker McKenzie in 
Geneva and I have to decide whether my kid goes to the local international school here or I send my kid to boarding school in the States or, you know, what's the best move here if I want to leave her options open for a really good college in the United States down the road. So, you know, there are one-off situations where before ninth grade might make sense, but, you know, that's not our default. Yeah. Let's just pretend that our firm is located in Lake Oswego, Oregon. It's yes, hypothetically. <laughs> yeah, so it it's generally recognized as one of the top school districts. Many of our clients live in and around the surrounding area, so they're either at, either at a great public school or a recognized private school. What would you expect, like, if somebody was interested in admissions consulting, and you have a pretty standard family situation, somebody who wants to go to a good school? It might not necessarily be Harvard, but mm-hmm. When would you generally see that student begin to engage with uh, an admissions consultant? I would say it really becomes game time in 11th grade. And really 11th grade, you're switching from building credentials to starting to think about how you're going to present those credentials. And those are two different things, right? And you're still building your credentials, obviously, in 11th grade. But, you know, you're submitting your applications in the fall of senior year, right? So 11th grade really becomes game time. Before then, there are decisions you need to make around sometimes around which school you pick or how you spend your summers or cities you think you might want to invest in. And then that's that's a that can be a very interesting topic. We could circle back to that. But, you know, there are decisions you have to make, but it's not very time intensive. Once you get to 11th grade, it becomes more time intensive to be thinking about both okay, you have to worry about the credentials and you're also starting to think about how you, how you present them and how you're going to tell your story and make it all come together, right? So, you know, there are different times that you could onboard basically, but I would say 11th grade is, is when it gets serious, as it were. Awesome. Well, Anna, thank you so much for our conversation today. Thank you for generously, generously sharing your, your knowledge and experiences, kind of that behind the scenes perspective that so many of us are desirous to know like kind of what's going on inside of that black box. How do they make mm-hmm. these decisions and, and pick the kind of the inevitable winners and losers of this competitive process. So for the listeners that really enjoyed what you shared today and were interested in kind of learning more, what's the easiest way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah. Come to my website, which is com. just my first and last name, and A-I-V-E-Y.com. And you can look at all of our packages there. We've got a resources page with a link to our book. If you want to check out the book and just kind of read 300 pages of college application goodness, you can sign up for our newsletter. I send out two a week. I actually just did one about the whole sort of black box aspect and what that means in the trenches. So yeah, there are a number of ways to come find me. LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, the usual suspects. I'm not hard to find. Wonderful. Well, we'll link to some of those in the uh, podcast notes. So I guess until we do it again, thank you very much. And to our audience, be well. Thanks for having me, Jared.